being as capital efficient as possible, especially I'd say it matters even more when you're building hardware. At the early stages, every dollar matters, every team member matters, and our goal is to be able to ultimately increase the supply of housing by building the streamlined process and product. And we're going to go all in on it or, or die trying. Welcome to Product Market Fit, a show about startups, technology, and growth for early stage founders and operators. I'm your host, Moshe Polterak, and my guest today is Ritwik Pavan, founder and CEO of Krava, a company looking to upend the massive residential construction industry with a revolution in modular prefab construction. You know, when I was a kid, I spent most of my free time building with Legos, so the idea of modular design in the real world really excites me. You'll definitely want to listen to this interview if you are a founder braving the difficult world of hardware and manufacturing, if you want to learn about how startups can deal with regulatory capture based on Ritwick's experience with Krava and his prior startup, Vade, or if you're generally interested in the future of home building and solving the housing shortage in the U.S. And make sure to listen to the end for a truly inspirational message that Ritwick shares from a founder friend of his who recently passed. My goal with this podcast is to share practical tips with founders and operators to help you on your startup journey. Help others like you discover the pod by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts or by sharing the episode on social media. And as always, I love to hear from you, so email me at hello at pmfpod.com or reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. The Product Market Fit Podcast is brought to you by Growth.co. That's growth without the O.co. Growth offers fractional CMOs paired with best-in-class digital marketing execution to support early-stage startup success. With a focus on seed and Series A companies, Growth has helped a number of SaaS, digital health, and e-commerce startups build their go-to-market function and scale up. To learn more and book a free consultation, go to growth.co, that's G-R-W-T-H dot C-O. Without further ado, here's Ritwik Pavan, founder and CEO of Krava. Ritwik, welcome to the show. So happy to have you on today. Thank you. Pleasure to be on. Krava is super fascinating what you guys are building. I've been hearing about it through the grapevine, and finally you guys recently started shipping your first product. So tell us, what is it that you guys have built and where are you up to in your journey? It's been several months in the making. We were in R&D for a while and finally we're able to announce the K1, which is our beachhead product. We're focused on being able to deliver 120 square foot spaces easily to homeowners' backyards. And we saw this as an entryway into our true vision of being able to deliver homes, more specifically backyard homes. With the K-1, one of the benefits is in most areas and municipalities, we don't need a building permit. We also don't need any permitting in most areas. And we take care of everything in terms of the actual panels, delivery, installation. And so it's been exciting to, after several months, finally be able to share what we've been working on. That's really cool and very impressive how quickly you guys have been able to come to market with your product. I know that R&D on something like this isn't simple. The product that you're selling today, the K1, that is a, what is called an ADU? Yeah. So funny enough, the K1 generally actually is classified as a shed because we have plumbing, because we don't have to worry about sewage. In most jurisdictions, we're able to get away by calling the K1 a shed. It's not actually a shed in terms of the way it functions and it's better purposed as, you know, home office, yoga studio, guest bedroom, gym, any of those. But the idea was to be able to use the same technology that we plan to use for our ADUs in the K1 
as a beachhead. So our true product isn't actually the K1. The true product that we've been building is the Krava system. And by that, I mean we have created standardized components or modules that can be used to essentially plug and play and build a living space. So the K1 is proof that we are able to do that. We've actually been able to create a modular bathroom as well. And now as we roll out the K1, we're working on the K2, the K3, the K4. Essentially the vision is to be able to customize it any way that the homeowner wants. The homeowner should be able to go online, design the living space of their dreams, figure out if they wanna have a bedroom down the road, a bathroom, a kitchen, any of that. And once they have customized it, we're essentially able to use our software to be able to identify what exact modules need to be built. And we've created it so they're interchangeable. So if you want to have a window in a certain area, you can just let us know where you want the window and the design. Or if you want a wall, if you want, somebody jokingly said on Twitter, I think, where they wanted a VR room. So they didn't want any windows in there. They're like, I want to use this for my Apple VR headset, which is pretty funny, or a golf simulator room. And the idea is that people should be able to build it out exactly the way they want by using our standardized modules. Our long-term vision outside of just the K-1 is to be able to enable homeowners to turn their backyards into revenue-generating assets. And we want to be able to do that by allowing them to, you know, if they don't have space for 500 square feet and they just want to make 300 square foot studio with a bathroom, then we're able to do that as well. But the K-1, like you had mentioned, is our initial beachhead product and the means to get to a larger system and scale up to ADUs, otherwise known as accessory dwelling units. Got it. So you're building kind of life-size Lego pieces for residential real estate. Is the vision to ultimately be able to build full-scale homes, or is it always going to be kind of that smaller size construction? Yeah. So the long-term vision is to be able to do infill housing and and family housing, but that's on the long-term roadmap. In terms of the short term, we're focused on being able to create microspaces and then eventually work up to building full backyard spaces and ADUs. Awesome. Talk to me about that decision in terms of going to market first with the small scale K1, but obviously it's not the end goal. You want to go bigger. Is it a matter of bypassing certain hurdles as it relates to regulation or zoning? Is it just from a proof of concept standpoint, you just wanted to come out with something that was lowest price point that you could? Talk to me about that decision. Both the points that you mentioned, you nailed it. With the regulation side, one of the biggest reasons why most people in this industry struggle is because of the regulations, the permitting, and the intricacies that are involved on a municipality level. The good news is that there's no better time, in my opinion, to be building ADUs than now because every city has it on their radar. They recognize that housing, we have a shortage of over 5 million homes right now. And so something needs to be done. And in my opinion, the ADU regulations being lifted is the best way to help increase housing because now you're able to go through private markets to let homeowners add value to their property, make passive income while being able to you know, increase the supply of homes. So in terms of the reason why we started with the K-1, it's because of both the regulations, but also being able to create small enough of a product that we can go test out the technology, the processes, get that certified and vetted. And then we also saw this being a good timing as interest rates have gone up. People don't want to get out of their 3% COVID interest rate. They don't want to jump up to 7% now. At the same time, you know, there's a lot of remote employees out there. So people want to be able to add a separation to their personal life. So we thought that it'd be a good 
initial product to be able to test out with the K1 and then work our way up from there. Because also the other unique part about the K1, it's all plug and play, pre-wired outlets, lighting, everything is set up and it, it takes less than 12 hours for us to install. And so that cuts out a lot of the barriers that most ADU companies initially see. And it's hard enough to build an ADU or a construction startup. And it makes it even harder if you have to be able to build and go straight to larger homes. So oftentimes the companies that we've seen or other incumbents, they've raised tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, and have still had a difficult time getting out to the market because it's not easy to just go from a traditional home building to completely saying, here's a modular home and getting it fully certified. Yeah. You mentioned the housing shortage, which is something that many cities in the U.S. are suffering from. There's also a labor shortage in the construction world, right? It's an aging out population. What other trends do you see that prefab can solve for? And why is prefab construction potentially a better solution for homeowners in general? There's a few reasons. One, with the labor shortage, it affects everybody, not just businesses or companies. At the end of the day, homeowners are struggling. I, I've talked to a lot of customers and asked why Crava, why not getting it built by a general contractor? And there's a few reasons. General contractors or even labor right now, it's a hot commodity. It's very difficult to come by. And you essentially are either paying a premium to be able to get somebody that is quality driven, that is focused on details, or you're paying something lower, but you have unexpected costs come in, you have unexpected timelines, predictability. So a homeowner might choose a modular solution instead for the speed. It's done a lot quicker. For example, once a homeowner customizes and works out their space with us, we take care of the entire process. So the production begins once the design is completed, once we vet that there's no permitting necessary, or if there is minimum permitting, we take care of that as well. And then once the production is completed, we deliver it on a flatbed truck, and then we take care of getting it installed by licensed contractors on site. And it's done in a fraction of the time that it would take as opposed to hiring a general contractor. Outside of that with prefab, you can expect consistent quality. So it's not like one unit is gonna be different in terms of the quality from another unit, as opposed to with a general contractor, there's a variance in the quality of the build. And long-term, I would say outside of the speed and the timelines and the quality of the build, eventually there will be a cost component. I don't believe we're there yet because of the fact that right now we're not fully automated and streamlined, but the long-term vision is to be able to incorporate automation so that less labor is required and you know we're able to build it at a fraction of the cost that construction is done at today. More automation in the manufacturing of the prefab components or in the assembly on-site or both? The on-site assembly, we have already accounted to design it to be easy to assemble. Our goal is that even if it's not a knowledge worker or skilled labor, anyone should be able to easily connect our panels. And like you had mentioned, you know, Lego-like, we want to make it as easy as possible. We're, we don't require a crane. We don't require a wide load truck. So that part is, for the most part, already handled. In terms of the automation I was referring to in the factory, we want to be able to have automated process so that the modules can essentially be assembled easily and constructed once a homeowner places their order. And once we get to that level of automation, we're able to decrease the costs. Mm -hmm. I was just listening to an interview with uh, Isaacson, who just released a biography about Musk. The Lex Friedman one? Yeah, exactly. He says that Musk envisions the manufacturing of a component when he's thinking about the design of the component. So not just how it's going to work in the product, but also how are you going to build the manufacturing 
or assembly lines in order to make that product. So talk to me about how that affects the way you're designing your company on the manufacturing side, and also just practically, you know, famously Tesla released the Roadster first, but ultimately their Model 3 is the best-selling EV of all time, right? Much lower price point. Is that part of your strategy as well? You're going to be able to, with automation, with efficiencies, bring the price point down that it can be, you know, significantly more accessible in terms of pricing to a wider audience. That's absolutely right. I mean, initially we foresee with this home office and the K1, we do see it as a a premium product, that being our initial gateway to getting out to the market. And then following that, we do plan to create larger but more affordable units at scale. And in terms of the way that we think about it, there's a very common term in manufacturing. It's called DFMA, Designed for Manufacturing and Assembly. And that is something that we discuss every single day. We want to make sure that we are minimizing the part count. We absolutely have to keep in mind what the manufacturing of this looks like. Right now, we are not at full automation. We're not anywhere near as automated as we want to be in the long term. So we have to account in for what does labor look like for this? What are the repeated tasks that we can eventually automate? So those are all questions we're consistently asking. And our engineering team focuses on when we're both designing and developing the actual modules. And one of the challenges with what we're trying to do is with the system that we're trying to build, we want to make sure that whether it's a 100 square foot space or a 500 square foot space, that there is not any legwork needed to be able to ultimately expand on the size of the unit. We want to make it just as easy as it would have been to set up a 100 square foot space. And that allows for us to provide in return more customizability for a homeowner while not having to lack on delivery or timelines. You bring up an interesting kind of trade-off that exists when you're building a system like this between customization versus modular design. How do you think about that trade-off from the customer's perspective and, of course, the cost involved in that from a manufacturing perspective? Yeah, so from a customer perspective, the trade-off that we're focused on is traditional construction or general contractors are really the biggest market share right now where it's on-site construction. And we want to make sure that customizability is at the forefront of our product so that a homeowner can go in and say, hey, this is where I would want to add a kitchen or a bathroom or a door or a window. And we are able to do that customization while still being able to uh, use our standardized components. And that's something that we haven't really seen so far. You know, generally, the reason construction can get so expensive is because of customizability, because of the fact that every time you make a small change, or you have a different layout, you have to make sure that those drawings and structural engineering and everything is properly integrated. And then for us, what we're aiming to do is essentially have these various different modules certified, factory certified in Texas, at least to begin with. And so that whatever a homeowner wants, they can essentially design and we are easily able to vet and approve the design and then actually build it in real life. I have one last question on this topic before we get to growth strategies and product market fit, but I'm curious about the environmental impact of prefab. Is that better or worse for the environment as this scales up? And also, as you scale, you're headquartered in Austin, your pilot market right now is in Texas. As you scale up nationwide or even internationally, will you need to have manufacturing facilities throughout the country? So if you can kind of share a little bit about that. Sure. So... As you mentioned, we're currently based in Texas. We're right here in Austin. And one of our big focus points with scalability is to ensure that we can localize manufacturing to an extent where we don't have to incur significant costs with delivery and logistics. 
One of the big reasons we went with panelized Lego-like components rather than volumetric, which is most frequently the way that offsite construction is done or prefab is done, is volumetric, meaning that the entire unit is built in a factory and then it's put on a truck, a wide load truck. The ones you get stuck behind on the highway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the ones you get stuck behind on the highway. And then once it's delivered, and there's also a lot of specifications in areas where you can't deliver it, they have to use a crane for every unit to put it in a backyard or to put on a piece of land to lift it. We didn't feel like that was the scalable solution. But there are several methods and several companies out there that are doing that, which generally is easier to do than, you know, being able to create modules and set it up on site. Both have their own challenges, but we believe that modules and a panelized prefab is more scalable. And then in terms of your first question that you asked about sustainability and the environmental impact, we are focused on reducing the environmental impact and getting to carbon zero. And we are able to reduce the material waste because of the fact that these are developed in a controlled environment in a factory. Typically in construction, there's about 30% material waste that's done generally because of supply chain and they don't want to risk having a shortage. They generally order a surplus of whatever material is being used to construct the site. For us, because we're able to standardize this entire process, you know, any excess materials can actually be used back into our facility, significantly reducing the material waste and the impact on the environment. Got it. Let's shift gears, talk about product market fit. At the earliest stages, obviously with a physical product, it's hard to beta test, you know, you have to build something, but there are ways to validate market demand and validate the need before you invest a ton of, uh, of CapEx in, in building something. How did you go about doing that at the early stages? Yeah, so we've operated very lean. We've got a small specialized team. Our team is amazing. We've got a mechanical engineer. We've got an industrial designer. We've got an operations lead. And we also have an amazing set of advisors that have experience in the construction space, architecture. And so... We've operated very lean. We're about 30 minutes outside of Austin to save on the office lease, which is one of the big costs. And then what we've done is we've spent a lot of time prototyping before we even built our first ever a unit. And then I emphasize to the team that it's important to get this out to market as soon as possible, hear customer feedback, identify early product market fit. And all of that goes back to where we are in the market today. You know, investor money is not free like it used to be in terms of raising capital. So I'd say that our team has been very capital efficient. And our, our biggest priority was outside of R&D was to build a, a functional prototype and get to a production build as quick as possible so that we can secure customers and generate revenue. Your team is very lean for what you're building, but before you even built that first prototype, what kind of market research or validation did you do in the market to even know that, yes, you know, this is something that we should be building at least for a, for a prototype? Yeah. So modular companies and prefab is not a new concept. It's been done for nearly a century. I mean, even in the 50s, Sears had created panels and essentially kits for homes. And, and even famously today, some of those homes still exist, which is incredible. So we're not the first company to do this. We're not going to be the last. And the reason that I felt to get into the space was because, one, the housing shortage, seeing that there's over 5 million homes that we're in shortage of, but also seeing and tracking the regulations. In my last startup, I was also focused on selling to government, where we were essentially building proprietary cameras. And without getting too much into detail, 
saw how government worked. And uh, when I was tracking along the problems that are worth solving, meaningful problems, the housing shortage struck out to me. And it also was nice to see that the government's trying to do something about it. And the two really influenced my decision into getting into housing. And then after talking to several experts, I attended a few modular conferences. I was looking at existing solutions. And frankly, I felt there was a better way to do it, a different way to do it and be able to scale. Because I think the big issue is how do we do this in a cost-effective way where we can also identify scale and be able to get this out to enough backyards initially. And so that's why I chose to start Kraba. I mean, we felt that there was a different way to do construction and we believe that panels and prefab is the best way to do it. And the approach that we're taking, we firmly believe in. Got it. You mentioned government and regulation and having bumped up against it in your last startup with Vade. What concerns you as relates to your rollout for Krava? How are you thinking about getting ahead of that as you will grow? Yeah, so all the tailwinds from what we've seen so far, if you actually do a Google News search even today, you'll see that there is a new city literally every day that's easing ADU regulations. And the reason for that is because they recognize that something has to be done today to increase the housing supply. And so in terms of what we have done thus far, we are making sure to keep track of the cities, the states, the municipalities that are improving favorability towards adding space in your backyard. And we're carefully vetting those right now. We're just in Texas, but we're expanding to California very soon. And at the same time, we want to make sure that the cities and the states that are able to open up their laws around ADUs, we are able to deliver to at some point in the near future. We talked about regulation, but we haven't even touched on HOA or the, you know, the lobbies that exist in the realtor lobby and the home builders lobby. So like you're, <laughs> there's a lot of big players. That all ties into, that all ties into regulations. The lobbyists are the ones who are pushing the regulations that are happening. Right. And some of them are in your best interest and sometimes they're not, you know, there are funny investors out there that push for a lot of the affordable housing, but they don't want that in their backyard. So it's a very common theme. I mean, this is There is a a game that is to be played with the lobbying side. I'm very familiar with lobbyists. We had lobbyists for our last startup. And you would hope that, you know, the politicians and the folks in the community care about the citizens' best interest, right? And so what we are seeing today, though, is that regulations are easing on the side of housing because there is no other solution. I mean, the more that rules and laws open up around being able to create more housing and making it easy, the better off everybody is. Yeah. I just watched Bill Girdley's talk at uh, the All In Summit about regulatory capture. So I'm a little a little less optimistic <laughs> as it relates to that. Yeah. I, I think there's only one option and it, and it is to be optimistic and hopeful that, you know, uh, especially in a problem as pressing as housing and you would hope that the changes are made in the coming years. And that's why even with competition and generally investors, are wary about competition, but with how big of a market this is, I mean, it's really a positive sum good for everybody if more housing. I mean, I'm always excited when I see other housing companies out there that exist because at the end of the day, we're all going for the same solution and that is to increase the supply of homes and be able to provide people with living spaces. And this is a big enough market where, market opportunity where, you know, there can be multiple players. Got it. You're still in the early innings here in terms of rollout, in terms of growth. What signals are you watching for most closely to assess product market fit, whether you have it, whether you need to make adjustments or pivot? What are you watching out for? 
We're closely watching a few different markets. Obviously, the investor market. We're watching the homeowners, the interest rates that are going up or down consistently have been going up. Um, in order to find product market fit, it will require for us to offer a host of different products from what we've seen. But also, there's going to be an aspect of covering all the different bases that go into construction. We'll need to take care of design. We'll need to take care of permitting if necessary. We'll need to take care of the development, installation, and delivery. In order to be able to scale and identify product market fit, we will need to cover all those bases, and we will need to be able to find an easy way to make it so that the homeowner simply clicks a button, puts in their information, puts in their payment. And once they're done with that, we're able to take care of the rest of it. And right now we are there with the actual development side. However, we want to get there on the permitting side. So we've created a permitting team on our end to be able to just focus on the codes across various different municipalities. And we want to make sure that we are meeting code requirements. We're also focused on getting our factory approved and getting it certified so that the pre-approved drawings, the layouts, the build, everything is approved, which also allows for easier scale. So sometimes can be frustrating and slower sales cycles than B2B SaaS or B2C, but we do feel uh, very fulfilled in our mission to be able to increase housing and in the long term, be able to build affordable housing. You're rolling out city by city, right? You mentioned starting in Texas, expanding to California soon. What channels are you investing in first from a customer acquisition strategy? So far, we've been mostly organic. Here and there, we've tried Nextdoor and Instagram ads and whatnot. And it's obvious that demand is there. When we first rolled out our website, we had just created a type form and essentially put our first render of what the unit would look like. We had almost close to 400 homeowners that applied saying, I'm interested. And it wasn't just a form of, are you interested? We asked them everything about, do you have HOA regulations? Would you be willing to pay upfront or a monthly payment? Do you care to get it permitted? We asked, we asked for their address. So it wasn't an easy for me. I mean, it took like five, 10 minutes to fill out. And we were able to get a ton of information. And then over the next three months, all I did was talk to the customers, get their feedback on it. So fortunately, we've had a lot of interest directly through organic. And right now, more demand than we can handle. The more difficult part of this business is not the demand, but actually being able to execute and get the production up. I mean, you see companies like Boxable, where they've had thousands of pre-orders. And there's a challenge when it comes to actually executing on it. And it takes a lot of capital in the long term to be able to do that. So we want to do it in a very healthy way, which is why we started with a K1, as we mentioned, and also be able to make sure that we can handle the customer demand that we believe is there in the ADU market. Right now, you're direct-to-consumer, you're in a beta rollout. As you think a little bit farther out, do you anticipate always being direct-to-consumer? Are you exploring retail partnerships like with Home Depot or Ikea or, or whoever else? Like, What's your thinking about distribution long-term? Yeah, so there's a few different methods. Outside of D2C, we've also been working on partnering up with developers, partnering up with other companies, permitting companies more specifically, that already have the customer base that they know wants to have an ADU or a backyard set up. And so we do have a B2B angle that we're taking. And then we haven't quite hit up the retail side of the business. But in the long term, there could be an avenue where we partner up with, like you had mentioned, IKEA, Home Depot. I would argue that our product is quite high end. So it probably wouldn't make sense for us to go up in the stores. So for us right now, we have placed more of an emphasis on going direct to consumer where we have seen the demand. 
However, with municipalities and areas where we're not ready to distribute to yet, we are exploring a B2B side where we can deliver the units to them and they take care of the assembly and we kind of outsource the distribution side. Right now, we're focused on essentially having assembly that is taken care of in our wheelhouse. So we want to be a full service company. So we haven't explored the retail side, but it is a possibility down the road. Right now, we're looking at D2C and also B2B and working with developers. With regards to the local trade partners that you need, you still need somebody on site to do assembly, right? How are you planning that acquisition strategy in parallel to the customer acquisition strategy? Is it you know, kind of similar to like Uber? They have to find uh, riders, they have to find drivers, right? So they have parallel strategies. So with the installation side, we have partnerships with contractors in the areas that we're supplying. So right now in Texas, the biggest market that I would argue is Austin based on our data. And so when we are looking at the Austin market, we already have contractors that we've partnered up with here to be able to go and actually handle the installation. For the first 10, 15 units, our team will also be there to ensure that there's a smooth installation and we're able to learn from each delivery. And our goal is to, over time, make it as simple as possible, even for the contractors to install it, have a full installation guide. So when we scale out to California, we're able to have licensed contractors that know exactly how to put these units together in the order of operations. Sure. Makes sense. What is the biggest concern or pushback that you get from investors as you're fundraising? There's always pushback when it comes to hardware and building atoms over bits, in my opinion. And I'm not new to this with our last startup being selling to government and building hardware and software. But in terms of, I'd say, the direct challenges that are discussed, it comes around to the permitting and the regulations, which I firmly believe there's no better time to build ADUs than right now. Outside of that, there is an increase in companies that are focused on building spaces. So there is competition building up in the space. Although several companies have several different methods. You see 3D printing, you see volumetric builds, you see panelized builds, you see companies that just take care of the permitting and do on-site setup. We're fully in the belief that in order to scale and be able to make a substantial impact on housing, we do have to go with building modular components that can essentially allow us to deliver whatever homeowner wants. But yeah, with challenges, I would say scalability, competition, and the regulations are all generally challenges that are brought up. Yeah, I'd imagine. You mentioned the competitive landscape. One of the benefits that excites me about the prefab modular design is that it's extensible and flexible down the road. So if you want to expand it, change it, swap it out with something else, right? it should be able to work. Will that work cross-system though? So if you have a competitor like Cover, for example, they have also a modular system for prefab design. Can I have a ADU from Krava, but add on an extension from Cover? Or is it a proprietary system that each company kind of has their own sort of walled garden and system that you can only operate in? Yeah, so we've created our own proprietary system that integrates. So whether you want plumbing in there, whether you want to have electricals, we've created our own system for it. And I believe most of the other companies in the space would do similar. And this allows for you to have complete control over the manufacturing process. And it isn't quite as simple as just being able to, you know, plug in a USB into a computer and it works. It's a bit more complicated. And also there's a lot more that comes in with the regulation side of things and being able to ensure structural integrity. So it isn't cross-functional across different units. So we talked a little bit about your previous startup as a second-time founder. 
What lessons have you learned? What mistakes are you going to avoid the second time around? Man, there's there's a lot. One is being as capital efficient as possible, especially I'd say it matters even more when you're building hardware. Everything from raising to the team that you're building at the early stages, every dollar matters, every team member matters, and the direct contribution is very important. So we're focused on outcomes over output. Our team is very mission driven. And we've essentially said our goal is to be able to ultimately increase the supply of housing by building the streamlined process and product. And we're going to go all in on it or, or die trying. That's the goal. I mean, this is, you know, several companies have failed, whether it's Katera that's raised $2 billion or a handful of companies over the past few years. So we're hoping to learn from them. I've spoken with a lot of the founders of those companies. I'd say that the number one thing I've learned from last startup is go out there and push as hard as you can for sales in the beginning. Build a healthy business and talk to your customers. Make sure that you're getting the right feedback. Otherwise, you could be building a useless product that nobody ends up using and you wasted all this money building it. I wouldn't say waste. You essentially didn't learn at the right time, you know? Right. In startup world, there's no failure. You either succeed or you learn. So either way, it's not a waste. What's been the biggest surprise or learning that you've had to date since starting Krava? That's a great question. There are so many intricacies that come in with the code. I thought with government and being somewhat familiar with it in the last venture, but I would say that you really don't know the can of worms that's opened up when it comes to construction. There's so many regulations and so many different intricacies within it that did catch me by surprise, but also made sense as to why it's been so hard for companies that have existed for the last decade to scale up in this area. There's no easy solution to getting around to it because regulations exist for very valid reasons. I mean, these are homes that you're talking about. People are living in them. You don't want any of these units to set on fire or, you know, every single thing matters. You don't want a water leakage in there. And so the regulations exist for very valid reasons. Even within the valid regulations, there are several intricacies. There are certain regions where you have to build for hurricane proofing, weather proofing, wind, fire ratings. So it definitely caught me by surprise seeing how deep the regulations go in. And then outside of that, I will say I was more surprised with, I didn't recognize how big the labor shortage was until I actually started looking for contractors myself. And it definitely validates our whole thesis around the fact that over time, over the next five, 10 years, you know, the housing crisis is not going to shorten just because we have a very low supply of, you know, blue collar workers. Yeah. You know, you're operating way down at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy. People need shelter. Not everybody needs a yoga studio, but that would be nice. But yeah, everybody needs a roof over their heads and we need technological and, and solutions and innovation to get there. Last question for you before we move into the lightning round you don't come from a construction or architecture background, right? Does that ever pose a challenge to you either directly or just in perception when you're dealing with partners or investors? How has that affected you at all? Yeah. So I like to think that sometimes outsiders are what it takes to go in and solve a problem. And I'm not naive to say that there weren't a lot of things that I had to learn. I generally give myself, you know, even before the startup, I, I generally give myself several months to talk to experts, read on it. And even with Vade, the last startup, we were focused on parking. I'd never worked a single day in a parking or government, but we were able to scale to several states and be able to provide an adequate solution to traffic congestion. And so with Krava, yes, there was definitely a learning curve and being outside the industry poses its challenges, 
But every single one of our team members and myself, we stay open-minded. We talk to you know several folks in the industry. We go out to construction sites and actually see for ourselves how it's being done. And we, we have a fantastic team that also has industry experience. So while I may not have been in construction or real estate or manufacturing in my lifetime, I do believe that the solution and what we've come to build is a unique solution that could work. And and sometimes industries like this, I think, benefit from having outsiders. So far, every industry expert that I've talked to has been very excited by our solution. And also, they get it. So it hasn't negatively affected us. Yeah, it's certainly often a benefit to not have preconceived notions, to ask the dumb questions that people are you know, taking for granted. But there's really no reason why it couldn't be done a different way. It just happens to be that way. And it takes an outsider to ask that question. We're going to move into our exciting lightning round. Sure. I'll ask you a few questions. Tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Sound good? Sure. All right. What book, newsletter, and or podcast do you find yourself recommending most often? It's got to be all in. Yeah. I listen to it every Friday. Who's your favorite bestie? My favorite bestie is David Sachs. But I, I, I do say that knowing that I also like Jason Calacanis because he had invested in in our last startup and launch. So, but David Sachs has got to be my favorite. All right. Okay. Well, I hope Jason doesn't get offended by that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like Jason too. What's one piece of terrible advice that you've received in your career? Go get your college degree and graduate. Did you drop out? I was going to, but I took a year off and wish I had, but immigrant parents I, and their dream was for me to get a degree, being the first one in our family to get a, a US degree. So I did it, but uh, I'd say it's terrible advice. I think that the best degree you can get is go out in the real world and use that same money that you would for tuition to go solve a, a meaningful problem or at least try. And if anything, like you said, you either succeed or you learn. So uh, I think that's better than any other degree. I mean, whether it be MBA, undergrad, don't get me wrong. There's some certain positions where it matters. But in my case, I would say that's probably the worst advice. Yeah. Get a, a real world degree, right? Yeah. What's one thing that you'd like to change about the venture startup world? There's a lot of changes, but I'm trying to think of the most meaningful one. I'd say that the standard investments generally go towards B2B SaaS because there's been a lot of success there. But I would say one thing that I would change is investing in companies that are building for the physical world. I think there's so many problems that exist, you know, where you can actually focus on atoms over bits and they're not getting enough attention that they deserve or the recognition or, you know, the capital. So if there was one thing I'd change, I'd say shifting away from the software only focus to companies that are either strictly hardware or hardware and software integrated. There's too much AI talk happening and I don't think there's enough discussion you know, had around infrastructure. It's starting to happen, but one thing I would change is strictly creating a fund focused around that. Yeah. Well, AI is being applied to the real world too, but point well taken, and I'm guilty as well in, in this podcast. I think it was not until episode 41 that I uh, had a physical world, uh, like a physical product startup. It was all software-based. So I am, you know, guilty as charged, but this is the the third hardware company that we're featuring. And there you go. Uh, there's several several more in the pipeline. And, you know, it's really fascinating stuff that you guys are building that affects our day-to-day -day life. And, you know, we live in the real world, right? We don't live in the metaverse yet. Who's the one person that you'd want to have coffee with? Who would you want to invite? Well, I'd say Elon's got to be there. I'd say Sam Altman would be really cool. There's a lot of people that come to mind. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to be very careful about who I think of. This is a great question. I like it. <laughs> Last one here. What core value or principle do you live by or try to live by? Recently, I actually lost a close friend 
And one of the messages that he had sent in an email before he decided to completely quit his job and go full-time entrepreneur. And he said, it can either be one day or day one. And recently I've been living by that statement. I, I really like it. I, and that applies to you know all aspects to think that it can be one day or day one, whether it's a new habit, you know, something you want to improve on, you know, making your bed, you know, getting in the gym, going out there and building a startup, whatever it may be. And I think he quoted somebody on it, but that is a core value that recently I have kind of just that really hits home for me. Yeah. It's a really good perspective because, you know, nobody knows when their time is up and we got to make the most of the time that we have on this world to make an impact. Ritwick, I really enjoyed this. You're building something potentially transformational that has real world effect on people's lives. Very cool stuff. Wishing you tons of success to close us out. How can people be helpful to you? How can people reach out if they want to learn more and anything else that you want to share with us to closing statements? Yeah. So if you are interested in learning more, I'm always happy to talk to people. And so you can shoot me an email at R-I-T-W-I-K at getcrava.com. So that's Ritwick at getcrava.com. You can visit our website at getcrava.com. And I'm always happy to chat with anybody about what we're building and, and the mission that we're solving. But more importantly, we are looking for homeowners that want to be able to add this in their backyard, Texas, California coming soon, and other states, and always open to chatting with investors who are interested in solving the housing crisis. And yeah, that's how it can be most helpful. Amazing. Thank you so much. Wishing you tons of success. We'll be watching and we'll be rooting for you. Thank you. That's a wrap. I truly appreciate you listening and joining me on this learning adventure. I can't believe we're coming up on 50 episodes. This has been such a special experience and I'm excited for the next 50 episodes and the 50 after that. In fact, I'm planning some exciting changes to make this podcast even better and more useful to you, the founders. But I'd love to hear more from you. So send me a note to hello at pmfpod.com and tell me how I can make this show more valuable to you on your startup journey. Make your email as short or as long as you'd like, and I will personally read each and every response. Finally, don't forget to check out growth.co, that's growth without the O.co, if you're considering a fractional CMO for your startup. As always, wishing you rocket ship success. Bye for now.